today is taken from the book of Matthew, um, two parts. First, I'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, and then I will continue to read from chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. If you'd like to follow along, please do so. Uh, the reading is on page 6 of the bulletin. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del Evangelio según San Mateo, capítulos 4 y 9. Mientras caminaba junto al mar de Galilea, Jesús vio a dos hermanos. Uno era Simón, llamado Pedro, y el otro Andrés. Estaban echando la red al lago pues eran pescadores. Vengan, síganme, les dijo Jesús, y los haré pescadores de hombres. Al instante dejaron las redes y los siguieron. Más adelante vio a otros dos hermanos, Jacobo y Juan, hijos de Zebedeo, que estaban con su padre en una barca remendando las redes. Jesús los llamó y dejaron enseguida la barca y a su padre y lo siguieron. Al irse de ahí, Jesús vio a un hombre llamado Mateo, estaba sentado a la mesa de recaudación de impuestos. Sígueme, le dijo. Mateo se levantó y lo siguió. Mientras Jesús estaba comiendo en casa de Mateo, muchos recaudadores de impuestos y pescadores, pescadores llegaron y comieron con él y sus discípulos. Cuando los fariseos vieron esto, les preguntaron a sus discípulos, ¿Por qué come su maestro con recaudadores de impuestos y con pecadores? Al oír esto, Jesús les contestó, No son los sanos los que necesitan un médico, sino los enfermos. Pero vayan y aprendan lo que significa. Lo que pido de ustedes es misericordia y no sacrificios. Porque no he venido a llamar a justos, sino a pecadores. This morning, we're continuing in our study of the book of Matthew, and a few weeks ago, looked at 
the baptism of Jesus, and then two weeks ago, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And today we're seeing how Jesus began his ministry by inviting people to become his disciples, his followers. What does that mean? Let's take a look. But first, let's pause and let's pray. Jesus, we're asking that you would be present. It's an amazing thing to think that we're reading this ancient text that tells the story of what you were and what you did and what you said and things that we can take away from that, but also to know that you're here even now. Uh, Mysteriously, spiritually, you are here. And so we have great confidence that you're going to help us, that you're going to help us to see what we need to see and understand, and most of all, that we would see you. And so please come and send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what your freshman year of high school was like. My freshman year had a lot of quirks to it, shall we say. And one of them was that I had this funny tendency to find myself idolizing some older guys in my school, to sort of follow them, whether if in my mind and just sort of copying them and attaching myself to them or even following them literally sometimes. I know that sounds a little weird. Some of you are worried. Well, let me explain a little bit. Sometimes there were failed attempts at this sort of followership of these upperclassmen, like was the case with John Sirocco. John was a senior. He was also a star water water polo player at our school. Um, I was an aspiring underclassman, also trying to break in to the game and into the team. And everything John did right in the pool, everything he did in the pool just seemed right. I would study the way that he threw the ball and caught the ball and the moves that he would make and try to do it just like him. That extended outside of the pool as well. He loved the Grateful Dead. I said, hey, why not? He had a way about him, carefree, always had a great sarcastic comeback line and always thought about the way in which cool John might be able to pull off a given situation until one day when we were hanging out after a game and sort of in the same sort of space. And to my surprise, suddenly I found that it was just he and me sitting on a bench together and he was whistling. And just like people do when one person is whistling, you start whistling too. So I start whistling as well. Until he turns around at one point, snaps at me and he says, uh, hey dude, don't ever whistle when someone else is whistling. It's not cool. And just how, you don't understand how heartbreaking that was in that moment, right? He said, it's not cool to whistle when someone else is whistling. You know, it would be one thing if he just told me stop, but he turned it into this life proverb or axiom or something. I don't know, right? It was just that much more devastating. And maybe that's why at that point I kind of moved on, and that's when I found Pazna, who was, of course, another cool dude who lived not too far away. And this sort of followership sort of got confined into the area of clothing. I just wanted to dress every way that Pazna dressed. And by the way that Pazna dressed, what I'm talking about is wearing silk shirts buttoned up to the very top and wearing nice, large, baggy Z Cavaricis. And if you don't know what Z Cavaricis are, you got to think MC Hammer. 
Okay, this is back then. And it extended beyond just that as well. You still have a pair, Garrett? Hey, you don't know, right? At other times, it wasn't that. It was overall shorts, but with one side unclipped. And a hat turned 90 degrees. And if you also need a visual, you ought to be thinking Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, all right? Now, if you really want a picture of this, I mean, I'm not cool now. I wasn't very cool then. That's what it looked like, basically, right? I mean, there was this sort of copying and imitating and dressing like and talking like, even acting like, and that was sort of the way that I did it, and maybe you did it too, way that younger people begin to follow those that they admire. And of course, this is a humorous little, maybe insignificant example of how this works. But it's curious and it's interesting that when the Bible talks about a new relationship with God through Jesus, when the Bible talks about what it means to be a Christian, it uses the language of following Jesus. If you were to be asked what sort of at the heart of the Christian faith, what sort of interaction is there between you and God or between a person seeking after God and God, would you use this language, following Jesus? The story that we're looking at illustrates a little bit of what this is all about. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, we find out in the first verse of this passage. He's near Capernaum, a small fishing town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was sort of a medium-sized lake in Palestine, about 64 square miles, which is just about the same size as the District of Columbia. It wasn't a big town, but it had enough fishing commerce, enough of a bustling market to need a local tax collector's booth, sort of a collection station. So Jesus is walking around this town one day when he sees two brothers. Their names were Simon, who was also later given the name by Jesus, Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were fishermen, and so here they were casting a net into the lake. In verse 19, we're told that Jesus said to them, come, follow me. And in response, we're told at once they left their nets and they followed him. Then Jesus continued on, we're told in verse 20, 21, and came across two other brothers. Their names were James and John. They too were fishermen, and they were preparing their nets, probably mending and repairing their nets from the long night of fishing the night before. They too, like Simon and Andrew, immediately left everything to follow Jesus. And then in chapter 9, verse 9, on a different occasion, but in the same part of town, we're told that Jesus came across a tax collector. We're told as Jesus went, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told them. And just like Simon and Andrew and James and John, Matthew got up and followed him. You see, these little vignettes, these stories, are stories of the recruitment of Jesus' very first followers, his disciples. But that phrase, being a follower of Jesus or following Jesus, what does that even mean? What does that tell us about the Christian faith? Let's take a look at three things that we find in this passage. First of all, 
that following Jesus starts with a calling. Secondly, that following Jesus means complete surrender. And thirdly, following Jesus is a commissioning for service. A calling, complete surrender, and commissioning for service. First of all, following Jesus starts with a calling. You notice Jesus approaches these individuals himself. He identifies them. He calls. He invites them. Come, follow me. And maybe that doesn't stand out as being that special or interesting to you, but you have to know that in the ancient world, Normally, it was students that would choose their rabbis, their teachers, their masters. They would be the one, like I, as a freshman in high school, that would be surveying the scene and deciding whose teaching and whose life was worth emulating, learning from. And so they would attach themselves to that individual and follow them everywhere they went as sort of an apprentice, as sort of an intern under this teacher. In the ancient world, normally, students chose their rabbis. Rabbis didn't choose their students. Guess what's happening here? Jesus chooses those whom will follow him. And here's the lesson, right? Following Jesus starts outside of yourself. Following Jesus actually starts it's not primarily something that begins with a personal decision. It's, it, it's not something that starts even with just your own impulse of religious interest. Following Jesus starts with God. You see, God chooses you. Following Jesus starts with Jesus coming after you, not you coming after him. Following Jesus starts with Jesus loving you, not you loving him. Following Jesus starts with Jesus searching for you, not you searching for him. No, not ultimately. Following Jesus starts with Jesus finding you, not with you finding him. Not with you living for him, but rather him, Jesus living and dying for you. You see, right from the start, what we're told here is that the story of the Bible is the story of God's initiative to rescue you and enter into relationship with you. It's the story of his grace. It begins with God, not with us, because if he waited around waiting for us, it would have never happened. It still wouldn't. And you notice, of course, whom Jesus calls as well. Jesus is hanging around the region of Galilee, which was famously sort of snorted out, snorted at, and looked down upon by the upper elites. There wasn't much sophisticated about Galilee and the people in Galilee. In fact, amongst the Jewish Folks, in the ancient world, Galilee was such a racially mixed area that it was also looked down upon for that reason as well. Sort of a working class part of town. Do, do you hear it? Jesus started his ministry on Georgia Ave, not Constitution Ave. 
He didn't go to the synagogue. He went to the harbor. He was looking for ordinary people, fishermen, uh, people like you and me. Uh, these were fishermen who obviously were sort of uh, owners of a family business, sort of normal, middle class, maybe working class folks, not impoverished, but they weren't religiously trained. They were not academically elite. They were not wealthy. These are the ones that Jesus went after first. And of course, when we get to chapter 9 in the second half of our reading here, we see that he's pursuing tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. Tax collectors, as you may know, were among the most despised in Jewish society. They were always overcharging, and everyone knew that that was done. They were thieves and cheaters. Worse than that, they were seen as traitors because they were representing the Roman government. They were working for the oppressive system that were keeping the Jews down. All for an extra buck. And then, of course, to top it off, they were always associating with religiously unclean Gentiles. They were sort of always known to be cavorting around with prostitutes and other public sinners. They were absolutely hated, despised, looked down upon, you name it. These are the ones that Jesus in particular went after to build these relationships with. Not just people that were socially regarded as quote-unquote sinners, but people who in fact, like you and me, are, were, are sinners committed to their own selfishness, robbing other people of dignity, let alone possessions. Thieves of love and attention. Is that you? It is me. At home, in the workplace, on the neighborhood block, all eyes on me. It's an addiction, isn't it? It's a spiritual slavery of the heart. The Bible calls it sin. Jesus is shown here as one who extends a gesture of friendship, even intimate fellowship. It was called eating a meal together. Associating himself at eye level as a peer with those who were outcast in those days. Pharisees, the religious leaders, didn't like it. They thought that would disqualify Jesus from being the holy man that he claimed to be. Because they believed they were righteous, already perfectly acceptable to God. But Jesus responds with these words. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea 6 in the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, he's saying, forget about people that are just trying to make an outward show of religiosity or morality or people that are just full of hypocrisy. Rather, what I really desire, what I'm really seeking is a lowly heart, a person who can honestly say, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I am sick, and I need a doctor. He says it's not the righteous in their own eyes that I've come to seek and call, but rather sinners, those who come humbly come and say they need a Savior. Which, of course, if that's the identity of his followers, then that would also mean that this community of followers, the church, was always intended to be and must be a community that is a hospital for the spiritually sick, not a social club for saints. 
But do you see this? This, this, this calling by the grace of God of broken, sinful people by the loving initiative of God. This is where following Jesus starts. Other religions start in the best places with the best people, start in the halls of power, seek the morally strong, saddle up next to the good guy. The God of the Bible moves in exactly the opposite direction, which means every single one of us in this room has hope. Not a single person ever has been or ever can be disqualified from the reach of the power of the loving initiative of God who saves sinners. Hallelujah. Whom does Jesus call to follow him? The ordinary, the unworthy. And if we really get this, if you understand this and you're starting to seek who this person Jesus is, then what you need to know that is what he most is seeking, what he most longs for, what he's most looking at is the humility of your heart, your willingness to get down low, your willingness to throw your arms up and say, I can't do this on my own, your willingness to look to him as your only possible savior, your only source of atonement, your only source of forgiveness, your only way to God, your only perfection and source of true life. And if you have him, if you are a follower of him, let me just simply ask you, if this is your identity, are you growing in humility? Because Jesus consistently says, this is the marked fruit of those who are coming to know the grace of God. Those who are quick to repent, those who are quick to say, I'm sorry, those who are quick to admit their brokenness, who are so there that they're even willing to laugh about the reality that with good humor, laugh about how could it be that God would love me so, that God would know me so, that God would still forgive me so. Are you growing in this way, following Jesus, following Jesus starts with a calling. Jesus is calling. Secondly, following Jesus means complete surrender. Complete surrender. It's a strange story, even as you've heard it or even as I've told it. Maybe it strikes you as odd, maybe a little bit plastic. This idea that Jesus would walk around town and sort of bump into these individuals and say, follow me, and they just sort of robotically get up and follow him. What is going on there? It seems like he's discovered four total strangers, and they leave their boats, their nets, their lives, their families. They follow. I mean, it sounds like a cult, right? It's the strangest of scenes. But here's where a little bit of context helps us. Most likely... These individuals had seen and heard Jesus before. They're familiar with his teachings. They've had time to process a little bit about him. But the story is being told in this literary fashion, in this manner, to illustrate the decisiveness with which they committed themselves to follow him. The radical nature of their devotion to Jesus. We're told that they left their work, they dropped their nets, left their boats, 
In the case of James and John, we're told they left their father, Zebedee. They dropped everything. And we know that they did fish again, you see. And we know that they didn't totally abandon their families, you see. But what changed and what's being illustrated here was what happened in their hearts. What happened in their hearts was that they left indeed. That some of us today are called to drop our nets and follow Jesus for the first time or maybe all over again. Because what he's calling us to is an absolute and total and complete surrender of our lives. To follow Jesus means to let him take such priority over you that his grace and his life and his authority would totally redefine your identity, your self-image, your own day-to-day priorities. What gets you up in the morning and what gives you peace to sleep at night. What shapes the order of what you do and why and how. That it touches down in real life in the minute-to-minute daily decisions that we make. Jesus is saying, I want priority, yes, over your work and your career. I I, I want priority over, yes, your family. And I know in different places and people and lives and cultures, each of these might be a little bit different in terms of which one tends to take pride of place in your life. What is it? But what Jesus is asking for, what he has earned, is being the ultimate center of your life, not pushed out to the religious department of life or or not sort of sequestered to the spirituality corner of your hobbies or just confined to Sunday out of a week of different days and activities. But rather, Jesus is saying, will you let me be your everything? And lest that sound like an unfair demand, understand that the story of following Jesus is watching him walk before you right through to the gates of hell. That to follow Jesus is to align your life behind the very one who gave up everything, everything, everything for you. The one who was himself the king of glory And yet he didn't just leave his nets, he left his glory to take on the low place, not just of humanity, but of the cross. Dying for your sins and selfishness. Taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Suffering in our place that you and I might be forgiven and freed of our guilt. This Jesus who left not just earthly father, but his heavenly father, where he lost his father on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This Jesus who held back nothing to have you in this way, to love you, to give you life, to rescue you, that it might be true 
as it's often sung in the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that we've experienced a, a love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What are you holding back? Or what is holding you back from full and complete, unbridled, giving yourself to the one who promises to love you perfectly? Sometimes you see it in what you refuse to pray for. Where we don't want to go there or let God touch that, that sometimes is that locked door in that room that you don't want him to roam into. Sometimes we see it in what you're only praying for, <laughs> the way in which we are begging and asking and yearning, not out of faith, but fear and frazzledness of soul, because I must have that, or I become nobody, or I must have him or her, or I must accomplish this, or if I lose that, then I become nothing, then I'll have nothing. And so you're praying and praying and praying, but don't you see, you're not really praying, and you're not really seeking after God, you're seeking after what? This thing that you're not willing to lay before God with open hands and with an open heart. Some of us say we follow Jesus, but really, if you're honest, we're honest, it's only because we want him to take us to someone else or something else. Whether that's happiness or money and security or self-fulfillment, Sometimes we say we're following Jesus, but really it's only for what he'll give us, not for who he is. Here is an invitation to follow him, to love him, to know his love for you. So following Jesus means complete surrender. We saw it meant it starts with a calling. And lastly and finally, following Jesus means being commissioned to serve. Following Jesus is a commissioning. Many people think that following Jesus is only about personal piety, my relationship with God, my spiritual growth, my soul. But look at this. In verse 19, Jesus approaches these fishermen and he says, come follow me. And immediately after, what does he offer them? An invitation to mission. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. As the old translations put it, I will make you fishers of men. You understand, there is no call to discipleship apart from the call to mission. To follow Jesus is to follow him in his commitment to redeem and restore this world. God never draws us in, into community, into himself, without also sending you out. 
And oh, for grace not to become an individual or a church community that sort of shutters the windows and closes the doors in the name of spirituality with no commitment to the mission of Christ. Follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Which, of course, is a strange metaphor. We're not typically fisher folk around here. Maybe some of you have a background in it. But he's simply calling people to go out, his followers to go out, and to themselves be inviters of others into followership with Jesus. Not into a net, but rather into a kingdom, into a family that belongs to God. Not into death, if you take the metaphor too literally, but rather, in fact, to give them life. Uh, to pull people in, not to turn them into the main course of a feast, but rather to invite them to a feast, a banquet of God's grace and salvation. God calls his followers to go fishing, to make more disciples, to draw more people into following Jesus through words that communicate the story of his grace winsomely, truthfully, through deeds and hands of compassion, a lifestyle that also communicates and exemplifies the very mercy and kindness of Jesus himself. What's some way that you yourself can be a fisher this week? Whether if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus today, knowing that this is part of your followership, this is this outward-facing, missional, pushing out, loving neighbor, caring for those around you, engaging in public justice, looking at the world with a broken heart, but with hope, knowing that God is committed to making all things new and right, is a part of your personal piety and discipleship, and relationship, and spiritual growth in Jesus. What might change if you saw it that way? Or if you're on a journey towards Jesus, what might change in your mind as you know that what you're being called to is not just to yourself, and not even just to relationship with him, but through him, to a fresh and new relationship with the world to engage the world in a way that maybe you've never engaged before with love and truth and mercy. Because when that happens, lives begin to change and communities begin to change and neighborhoods begin to change. We know this because this is the testimony of many of you here in these pews, that once you began to follow Jesus, everything changed. Once you began to move in the direction of that complete surrender, when you get a sense of that gracious calling, God taking the initiative to rescue you, not waiting around for you to try to rescue yourself. Lives begin to change. In fact, this very story itself is an illustration of that. Did you notice it? It's subtle and yet obvious. It's a story about Matthew, a tax collector, right? Matthew, a tax collector, 
who was approached by this loving Savior, called into relationship with him. Matthew, who became the author of this very book itself. A tax collector, changed by the grace of God. In fact, one scholar argues, helpfully, that it was also even Matthew's work as a tax collector that assured his fluency both in Greek as well as Aramaic. And could it have been that God would use his language ability in the writing of this account of Jesus' ministry? And not only that, but even his skill and the accuracy of keeping records day in and day out and year in and year out, even making him fit for note-taking and later writing of this gospel as well. You see, you never know. It's not just your life that might be changed, but even your gifts and your skills and your passions, the way that God might take you and use you in ways that you right now can't even imagine for the purposes of his kingdom. That others might be brought in. That you, through him, might become yourself a fisher of people. Are you willing to go there? Do you long for that? Do you see this as a vision of what this passage gives us? As to what it really means to follow Jesus. Will you follow him today? Let's pray. So we're asking that you would give us grace to follow you. Every person here having a different challenge as to what this means. Please, Holy Spirit, come. Give us grace. Move our feet. Open wide our hearts. Do this even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.